Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Welcome to the Always On EM podcast. My name is Venk Belamkanda. I am one of the two main hosts of the show, and I have the privilege of welcoming you to this month's Grand Rounds episode, which comes to you mid month every month. This month is particularly special as it is May, and it's a great time to say thank you to the moms in your life as May brings Mother's Day in the United States. Also, May is a great month to appreciate the nurses in your department as Nursing Appreciation Week also falls in May. Of course, in addition to saying thank you to the moms in your world and the nurses in your department, you should definitely go smash the follow button, like, and comment about the show on whatever platform you're listening on. This episode is wonderful because it highlights another group of teammates that we have in our department, our pharmacists. I believe most emergency departments that have pharmacists have found that the patients get elevated care and the teams are thrilled when pharmacists are involved. We are lucky enough, in addition, to have a pharmacy residency program to give clinical pharmacists additional expertise in emergency medicine specifically. Our pharmacy leaders, Drs. Alicia Matheson and Francis Emanuel, and many others have created a fantastic training experience here in Rochester. If you yourself or you know somebody else interested in an EM residency as a pharmacist, please check this one out. One of our current pharmacy residents recently gave grand rounds on the topic of high-dose insulin for the treatment of beta blocker and calcium channel blocker overdose. Let's listen in as one of the pharmacy faculty, Dr. Kellen Engstrom, gives his introduction, and then he takes a deep dive into the science. Take it away, Kellen. Thank you, everyone, for joining. It's my pleasure to, today to introduce Dr. Kyle Hess. Dr. Hess received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from South Dakota State University and completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency at Mayo Clinic here in Rochester. He is currently completing his PGY-2 in emergency medicine uh, and on completion of his pharmacy residency, will take a new role as an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist at Sanford Health in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Today, Kyle will be presenting on a great toxicology topic, all in on insulin, use of high-dose insulin, euglycemic therapy, and calcium channel blocker overdose. I'll take it away. Thank you for the introduction, Kellen. And thank you everybody for having me here today. I think this will be a fun topic to review, especially since it's something that we don't necessarily come across a whole lot in our clinical practice. So I'm excited to get to talk about some of the nuances behind treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose. To try and emphasize the importance of this topic, I wanted to highlight that cardiovascular medications are actually the second most common cause of death due to prescription drug overdose behind pain and analgesic medications and are responsible for over 200 deaths every year in the United States. Of this category of medications, calcium channel blockers actually make up the largest number of these deaths. And in recent years, deaths due to calcium channel blocker overdose has actually outnumbered deaths due to every class of antidepressant medication combined. Common treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose includes IV calcium, vasopressors, and high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy. However, I think a lot of us feel uncomfortable with how and when to implement these various therapies if we are confronted with a severe calcium channel blocker overdose. Because of that, my objectives for today's presentation are for you to be able to describe the pathophysiology of calcium channel blocker overdose, explain the rationale for use of high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy, and identify potential differences between the pathophysiology of non-dihydropyridine and dihydropyridine overdose. 
I have no relevant financial relationships to disclose. However, I will be discussing off-label use of a bunch of different medications, which I have listed here on the screen. Before we dive into the toxicology of calcium channel blocker overdose, it's going to be important for us to first understand the normal pharmacology of these agents, as well as the role of calcium channels in different organs throughout the body. Calcium channel blockers are broken down into two broad categories. We have our non-dihydropyridines, including agents like diltiazem or verapamil, and these agents are typically thought of as being more cardioselective. And then we have our dihydropyridines. Uh, most commonly, that's going to be amlodipine, but also includes agents like mifetipine. And we typically think of these as being more peripherally acting in vascular smooth muscle. Calcium plays an important role in the heart for both cardiac conduction as well as cardiac contraction. Uh, extracellular calcium ions will enter the myocyte through L-type calcium channels, where it then stimulates release of additional calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, displacing tropomycin, allowing actin and myosin to bind, resulting in cardiac contraction. When we think of our non-dihydropyridines, these agents block entry of calcium into the myocyte significantly reducing intracellular calcium ions, resulting in a decrease in both chronotropy and inotropy. Calcium plays a very similar role in vascular smooth muscle, where entry of calcium ions into the cell allows for constriction of vascular smooth muscle, increasing blood pressure. Dihydropyridines have a higher affinity for these calcium channels in vascular smooth muscle, where they block entry of calcium into the cell, resulting in smooth muscle relaxation and vasodilation. One additional and often forgot about location of calcium channels within the body are in the beta islet cells of the pancreas. Here, calcium is responsible for facilitating the release of insulin into systemic circulation. If you have high enough concentrations of calcium channel blockers, you can see actual, actually see inhibition of release of insulin into systemic circulation, leading to hyperglycemia and even potentially a functional insulin resistance. This is going to be an important mechanism to keep in mind for later on in the presentation when we talk about some of our different therapies available for calcium channel blocker overdose. So now that we've talked about the role of calcium channels in different organs throughout the body, we can start to think about how these patients might present in the setting of an overdose. If a patient comes in with a massive ingestion, regardless of if the agent ingested is a non-dihydropyridine or dihydropyridine, you'll often see a loss of rece receptor selectivity, so you can see a variety of different shock states. Cardiogenic shock, as I'm sure you're all aware, is characterized by a significant decrease in cardiac output and hypodynamic circulatory performance, whereas systemic vascular resistance is often left unchanged or can even slightly increase as the body tries to compensate. It's easy to see how you get a cardiogenic shock following calcium channel blocker overdose, as these agents are going to have a fairly profound effect on both heart rate and contractility, leading to a decrease in cardiac output and blood pressure. Treatment of cardiogenic shock is typically going to include inotropic agents to help restore heart rate and contractility. Vasodilatory or distributive shock, on the other hand, is going to be characterized by a significant decrease in systemic vascular resistance, and you can see an increase in cardiac output in a hyperdynamic state as the body tries to compensate. Again, you can see this type of shock following a calcium channel blocker overdose, as these agents are going to have an effect on vascular smooth muscle, and you can see a fairly profound vasodilatory state. Treatment of a vasodilatory shock is going to typically include vasopressors to augment your systemic vascular resistance. And then due to loss of receptor selectivity, really you can see a mixed shock picture as well with a decrease in both systemic vascular resistance and cardiac output. And in the setting of a mixed shock, you'll likely need to use a combination of both inotropic agents and vasopressors to restore mean arterial pressure. 
Because of the variability in how a patient may present, it's going to be important for us as clinicians to use tools available to us to quickly and accurately determine a patient-specific shock state. A tool I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with is bedside cardiac ultrasound, and this can help us determine if a patient is currently hyper or hypodynamic and guide our therapies. It's important to keep in mind that this isn't necessarily just a one and done thing either, but rather we can be using this throughout a patient's hospital course to optimize therapy. It can be helpful to determine an initial shock state and guide our first line therapies. After we initiate those therapies, it can help us titrate to an optimal dose. If we see a sudden change in patient status, it can help us determine if maybe a patient's shock state has shifted. And then as we're trying to wean off of therapies, it can help us know if we're moving too fast. So now that we know that how, now that we've talked through how these patients may present, we can start to think about some of the different treatment options we have available for calcium channel blocker overdose. If a patient presents soon after an ingestion, typically within one to two hours, you can consider GID contamination with something like activated charcoal. And from there, we'll be monitoring for signs and symptoms of toxicity, like hypotension, bradycardia, or altered mental status. If no symptoms develop, you can simply start by observing the patient. However, if symptoms do develop, first-line therapy is going to typically include gentle fluid resuscitation with 10 to 15 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid, as well as IV calcium, where it will often target 1.5 to 2 times supper limit and normal of ionized calcium. The rationale for this therapy is that if you provide enough extracellular calcium ions, you can actually potentially overcome that calcium channel blockade, and there's many case reports of patients being treated with IV calcium monotherapy following an ingestion. After our first sign therapies, you'll set your patient up on close hemodynamic monitoring, where you'll watch for things like evidence of myocardial dysfunction and decreased cardiac output, vasodilatory shock, or bradycardia. If a patient has a de- significant decrease in cardiac output, first line therapy is typically going to include our high-dose insulin, and you can add additional inotropic agents like dobutamine and epinephrine if needed. If a patient has a significant vasodilatory shock state, a good first-line vasopressor is going to be norepinephrine, and you can add additional vasopressors as needed. And if a patient has bradycardia, you can start with atropine boluses as a bridging therapy, and then you can consider starting an infusion with more beta activity like epinephrine or doing something like transcutaneous pacing. Once these therapies have been optimized, if a patient's status still isn't improving, then you can consider moving on to your more refractory therapies, which would include methylene blue, intravenous fat emulsion, or consulting the ECMO team. With all of these different therapies available, it can get really difficult thinking through how and when should I actually implement them. So I think it'll be helpful for us to walk through a couple of different patient cases to apply these concepts. The first patient case I have for you is AJ, who's a 35-year-old male, presenting four hours following a reported ingestion of 70 diltiazem, 240-milligram extended-release capsules. He denies any co-ingested medications or any relevant past medical history. My first question that I have for you is based on AJ's reported ingestion what initial physiologic changes would you expect to see at this time? Would you expect to see A, a reduction in systemic vascular resistance with increased heart rate and forced contraction to compensate, B, reduced heart rate leading to a decrease in cardiac output in a hypodynamic state, C, reduction of the force of contraction leading to decreased cardiac output, or D, reduced insulin release leading to hyperglycemia and a functional insulin resistance? I'll give you all a minute to think through what you, how you would answer this, and if you want, you can put your answer in the chat by uh, typing. A, B, C, or D. 
So now that you've had a minute to think about this question, uh, the purpose wasn't to say that there's one particularly correct answer, but rather to highlight that due to a loss of receptor selectivity, you could really see any or potentially all these different presentations throughout a patient's hospital course. And it's going to be important for us to not anchor in on this patient ingested a non-dihydropyridine and diltiazem, so I only think of cardiogenic effects, or if it was amylodipine thinking, I'm only going to see vasodilatory effects, again, to that loss of receptor selectivity. So it's going to be important for us to determine a patient-specific shock state. In this particular case, AJ is initially mildly bradycardic with heart rates in the 50s, mildly hypotensive with systolic pr pressures in the hundreds, and MAPS in the 70s. He's given first-line therapies with normal saline resuscitation, and then calcium is repleted to target an ICAL of 1.5 to 2 times the upper limit of normal. However, later on in his presentation, about eight hours post-ingestion, he becomes progressively bradycardic and hypotensive despite adequate calcium re replacement. And at that time, a bedside cardiac ultrasound is performed, uh, revealing that he is currently in a hypodynamic state. I want you to think through now, what therapy do you think would be most beneficial to initiate at this time? Would you reach for high-dose insulin, or would you just start vasopressors like norepinephrine? In order to answer this question, you're going to have to have a good understanding of what the rationale is for use of high-dose insulin and calcium channel blocker overdose, including its proposed mechanism of action and what evidence is available for its use. During periods of stress, such as during a shock state following a calcium channel blocker ingestion, the heart shifts its preferred source of energy from free fatty acids to carbohydrates. The heart relies on insulin-mediated active transport to move glucose across the cell membrane into the myocyte, leading to ATP production needed for myocardial contraction. You'll remember that during calcium channel blocker overdose, you can actually see inhibition of endogenous insulin release, and this can lead to insufficient transport of glucose across the cell membrane and insufficient ATP production. As a result, the heart is often unable to meet metabolic demands, which can lead to a worsening of cardiogenic shock. High dose, the rationale for high-dose insulin is that after we administer this therapy, we can restore the transport of glucose across the cell membrane, restore ATP production, resulting in a positive inotropic effect. So what I want you to think of when you think of starting high-dose insulin is that you're going to be giving an inotropic agent that's going to increase force of contraction. However, it's going to have a fairly minimal effect on heart rate as it's not really addressing the conduction abnormalities of the heart. High-dose insulin also has a secondary mechanism of action where it enhances activity of endothelial nitric oxide synthase to increase nitric oxide production. So what this is going to do is it's going to result in a vasodilation which can be potentially beneficial in improving microvascular dysfunction, which is going to be one of the hallmarks of cardiogenic shock, as well as improving coronary artery perfusion and oxygen delivery. It's important to keep in mind, though, that this vasodilation isn't just specific to the heart, and you can actually see peripheral vasodilation as well. So you can potentially see a decrease in systemic vascular resistance, which could be potentially harmful if you have a significant vasodilatory shock. With this mechanism in mind, you might be asking yourself, why don't we just stick with vasopressors for treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose? To answer this question, we'll look at a couple of different studies in animal models, as well as some real-life human data comparing vasopressors and high-dose insulin therapy. A couple of studies in the early 2000s, including one study published by Dr. Stan Kreitzer, uh, compared vasopressin to placebo in animal models of rapamil toxicity. Interestingly, in both of these studies, use of vasopressin actually appeared to be potentially harmful, with a study by Stan Kreitzer showing that increased doses of vasopressin actually led to a decrease in cardiac index. And the study published in 2005 found that animals receiving vasopressin had numerically higher mortality than animals uh, receiving placebo. In both of these studies, there was no significant difference in mean arterial pressure 
pressure be between the animals receiving vasopressin and the animals receiving placebo. You might be quick to point out, though, that vasopressin could potentially be a suboptimal agent for treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose, as it's going to add no inotropic support for treatment of cardiogenic shock. This is definitely true. However, there's a series of studies published in the 1990s that did compare high-dose insulin to agents that do offer inotropic support, like epinephrine and glucagon. These were also animal models of verapamil toxicity, and what these authors found is that in two of the studies, treatment with high-dose insulin resulted in the highest rates of survival, and in another study, treatment with high-dose insulin resulted in the longest survival time, while treatment with epinephrine actually resulted in lower survival time than animals treated in the control group. These authors also report the effect of these therapies on hemodynamic parameters. And while this gets a little confusing, the main thing I want you to take away from this is that treatment with high-dose insulin resulted in improvement in markers of cardiac output. Well, in one of the studies, treatment with epinephrine just led to increased arrhythmias. And in another study, treatment with glucagon and epinephrine actually led to a decrease in left ventricular efficiency. So takeaways from these early animal models is that vasopressors may actually be potentially harmful in treatment of calcium channel blocker toxicity. How does this compare to data that we have in humans, though? While it's really difficult to conduct randomized controlled uh, trials and toxicity models of humans, there was a nice systematic analysis of case reports in humans that had overdosed on calcium channel blockers and uh, had a resultant cardiogenic shock. What these authors did is they characterized the effect of different vasopressors that I have on the screen as being either effective in improving both heart rate and blood pressure after initiation, partially effective in improving just one of these parameters, or improving these parameters in combination with other therapies or not effective by having no effect on either heart rate and blood pressure. What these authors found is that there were only a few case reports where vasopressors were truly uh, effective at improving both heart rate and blood pressure. There were a decent number of studies where vasopressors were partially effective in improving just one of these parameters or only in combination with other therapies. But in the vast majority of case reports, initiation of vasopressors actually led to no improvement in either heart rate or blood pressure and cardiogenic shock following calcium channel blocker overdose. So takeaways from this is that vasopressors are likely minimally effective, but not necessarily harmful in treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose. How does this compare to data that we have for high-dose insulin in humans, though? Over the past decade, a few different poison control centers have been publishing case series with their experience in using high-dose insulin and toxicity in humans. One study published by Holger and colleagues in 2011 looked at 11 different patients who were treated with high-dose insulin at rates of 1 to 10 units per kilogram per hour. In this study, the authors reported fairly high rates of survival of 92% overall and actually 100% in those patients ingesting a calcium channel blocker. And they also reported the effect of high-dose insulin on hemodynamic parameters by reporting a blood pressure nadir as well as a post-insulin bolus blood pressure. And what you can see is in the two patients who had a calcium channel blocker ingestion, you saw a significant increase in blood pressure following the bolus of high-dose insulin. These authors also reported common adverse effects. Uh, as you might expect, high-dose insulin resulted in fairly high rates of hypoglycemia and then hypokalemia as you shift potassium into the cells. Another study published in 2013 by the Illinois Poison Control Center looked at 46 patients, all reporting a calcium channel blocker ingestion, who were treated with high-dose insulin at a relatively lower rate of 0.5 to 1 units per kilogram per hour. Again, you saw decently high survival in this cohort of 80%. And interestingly, these authors reported that no patients developed or hypoglycemia. Potential contributing factors to this might be the fact that all these patients ingested calcium channel blockers, which is going to predispose them to hyperglycemia at baseline.
baseline rather than hypoglycemia, and then the lower rate of high-dose insulin utilized. In 2018, two additional poison control centers pu published larger case series uh, where patients were treated with high-dose insulin ranging from 1 to 15 units per kilogram per hour. And again, you saw fairly high survival rates ranging from 84 to 90% and common adverse effects of hypoglycemia and hypokalemia. One thing I'll note about the study published by the Minnesota Poison Control Center by Cole and colleagues is that they had a relatively lower rate of hypoglycemia and hypokalemia, which the authors attribute to utilizing a standardized protocol for electrolyte and glucose replacement, which just emphasizes the importance of having a standardized protocol at our institution and close monitoring of these parameters. So takeaways from our high-dose insulin data is that maybe it's potentially beneficial with high rate, relatively high rates of survival and potential improvements in hemodynamic parameters, but is associated with common yet easily correctable adverse effects. So now let's go back to our patient case with AJ, remembering that he's becoming progressively bradycardic and hypotensive, and currently bedside ultrasound is showing that he's in a hypodynamic state. At this time, we decide that we want to start high-dose insulin, and my question for you to think about is what benefit would you expect to see following initiation? Would you expect to see A, an increase in systemic vascular resistance, thereby increasing mean arterial pressure, pressure, B, inhibition of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, leading to coronary vasoconstriction, C, increased transport of glucose into the myocyte, resulting in a positive inotropic effect, or D, a significant increase in heart rate to resolve bradycardia. Again, I'll give you all a minute to think about how you would answer this question, and if you want, you can put uh, your answer to the question in the chat. So, the answer to this question is C. Uh, High-dose insulin is going to optimize myocardial energy utilization, and this is going to lead to a positive inotropic effect, um, resulting in improving uh, cardiac output and hopefully resolving cardiogenic shock. A and B are incorrect because high-dose insulin is actually going to enhance the activity of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, leading to coronary vasodilation and potentially decreasing systemic vascular resistance. And D is incorrect uh, because high-dose insulin insulin isn't going to necessarily have a significant effect on the cardiac conduction abnormality, so it's going to have a fairly minimal effect on heart rate. So now that we decided we want to start high-dose insulin in AJ, let's talk through some of the logistical factors that you need to think of when you're starting high-dose insulin in a patient. When you decide you want to start high-dose insulin, it's going to be important to first obtain central access. This is because we're going to be using really concentrated solutions of insulin and dextrose to prevent fluid overloaded from all the dextrose these patients are going to be requiring. So first thing you're going to do is obtain central access. After that, he'll give an initial bolus of dextrose of typically one to two amps based on what the patient's baseline blood sugar is. And then you'll give your initial bolus of high-dose insulin, which is one unit per kilogram as a fast IV push. After you give your initial boluses, you'll simultaneously start your insulin infusion at a rate of one unit per kilogram per hour, as well as a concentrated D50 infusion, which will typically start at a rate of 100 milliliters per hour. Here at Mayo, we have this all built into an order set for you. So if you search for high-dose insulin, you can select the order set titled high-dose insulin for calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdose. And from there, you can select what your patient's baseline blood sugar is, and then that will default order your dextrose bolus and infusion for you. And then once you check the insulin box, that will order your initial bolus of insulin as well as infusion. From there, titration of your insulin is going to be based on improvements in cardiac output. So if you have initial improvement in cardiac output, you can continue the rate at the one unit per kilogram per hour and wean your other vasopressors you've started as you're able to. However, if you don't see infusion, then you can increase the rate by up to one to two units per kilogram per hour every five to 15 minutes, up to a soft max of 10 units per kilogram per hour. I'll note this is a soft max, uh, and there's many case reports going at rate 
rates higher than this, and we've gone at rates higher than this many times here at Mayo as well. But if you're approaching these rates and still not seeing improvement, then it's going to be important for you to think through, is there a different shock state that I'm not addressing? And then also, you should really be consulting with the Minnesota Poison Control Center to get an expert opinions, um, expert's opinion on board as well. With your dextrose infusion, you're just titrating this to maintain a goal of blood sugar of 150 to 250, and we'll typically start with Q15 minute glucose checks. If glucose is low, you can give a bolus of dextrose and increase your infusion rate, and if it's high, you can decrease your infusion rate by 25 to 50%. And then as we talked about, an additional important monitoring parameter is going to be potassium as well, where we're targeting a goal serum potassium of greater than 2.8. And we'll typically start with Q1 hour potassium checks. And if that's low, you can replete up to 20 milliequivalents of potassium chloride per hour. We have all the electrolyte replacement also built into that order set as well. So you can simply select where your potassium's at and it will order the replacement for you. So now that we've talked through starting high dose insulin in a patient fairly early on in their presentation, let's take a look at another patient who's a little further along and already has some therapies started. NY is a 44-year-old female who ingested 90 amlodipine 10 milligram tablets, and you're currently caring for NY who's three days post-ingestion. Current therapies that have been initiated include high-dose insulin running at a rate of 8 units per kilogram per hour, norepinephrine running at a fairly high rate of 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute, and calcium has been adequately repleted. Today's assessment of NY's hemodynamic status is as follows. She's a little tachycardic with a heart rate of 95. She's hypotensive with a blood pressure of 74 over 38, resulting in a MAP of 50. And bedside cardiac ultrasound is performed, revealing a hyperdynamic state. Now, I want you to think through, based on what you've already started, what interventions do you think you would implement to improve NY's hemodynamic status? In order to answer this question, it might be helpful to think through the specific ingestion report in this case. So amlodipine is a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. And over the past decade, deaths due to amlodipine overdose have been, become increasingly common. In 2020 and 2021, deaths due to amlodipine overdose have actually doubled deaths due to non-dihydropyridine overdose like diltiazem and verapamil. What's interesting about amlodipine is it actually has an additional mechanism of action besides simply blocking calcium channels. Amlodipine enhances activity of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, leading to increased nitric oxide production, stimulating guanylate cyclase, resulting in an additional mechanism of vasodilation. You might remember that high-dose insulin also enhances activity of endothelial nitric oxide synthase. So there's a hypothetical concern for a synergistic activity between the high-dose insulin we use to treat calcium channel blocker overdose and amlodipine that might result in a more profound vasodilatory state. In order to try and further characterize this hypothesized mechanism, Cole and colleagues out of the Minnesota Poison Control Center actually just recently published a retrospective cohort study that looked at a group of patients who reported a calcium channel blocker overdose and were receiving high-dose insulin. These authors divided patients into two groups, one group of patients reporting an amlodipine ingestion that included 18 patients, and then another group of non-dihydropyridine patients that included 15 patients. Then the authors, uh, the author's primary outcome was assessing for evidence of vasoplegia, 
such as number of vasopressors required, dose uh, vasopressors were titrated to, and then use of refractory therapies like methylene blue. On the right side of this slide, you can see baseline patient characteristics. And what I'll highlight here is that the severity of ingestion seemed fairly similar between the two groups uh, with similar nadir heart rates and blood pressures, similar rates of mortality and major and moderate clinical effects, and then similar rates of co-ingested medications. What the authors found is patients in the amlodipine group were typically titrated to higher doses of high-dose insulin with a median rate of 10 units per kilogram per hour compared to just 5 units per kilogram per hour in the non-dihydropyridine group. And then patients in the amlodipine group also typically required a higher number of vasopressors with a median of 3 compared to 2, and then were titrated to higher doses of epinephrine of a rate of 0.31 compared to 0.09. Use of refractory therapies like methylene blue was also significantly higher in the amlodipine group. I also have listed the use of other vasopressors like vasopressin, phenylephrine, and angiotensin II, and you can see that these are all numerically higher in the amlodipine group. So the author's takeaway from this study is that patients ingesting amlodipine did have increased markers of vasoplegia, were titrated to higher doses of high-dose insulin, and had increasing need for vasopressors. Because of this, if you have a patient like NY who's reporting a massive amlodipine ingestion, you might need to start thinking through potential refractory therapies available to you to treat their vasodilatory state. One intriguing therapy is methylene blue, and this is because methylene blue will actually inhibit the activity of endothelial nitric oxide synthase scavenge nitric oxide and inhibit guanylate cyclase, all these things preventing the vasodilation that you might see from both amlodipine and high-dose insulin. Another potential refractory therapy is intravenous lipid emulsion or intralipid. And the rationale for this therapy is that when you ingest a medication, it's going to distribute between different compartments. You have your plasma compartment where drug is going to be physiologically inactive. And then you have your target organs of toxicity like the heart, vascular smooth muscle, and beta islands cells at the pancreas. The thought behind intralipid is that after you administer it, you're expanding your plasma compartment, which will then draw drug away from the target organs of toxicity, allowing it to be eliminated. This is theoretically going to be most beneficial for drugs that are highly lipophilic or have a high volume of distribution, which includes your calcium channel blockers. We have some mixed evidence for the efficacy of both methylene blue and intralipid. Some promising studies in rodent models comparing methylene blue to placebo or, or, or no treatment found that methylene blue resulted in improved two-hour survival and improved hemodynamic parameters. Another larger rodent study recently published compared rodents receiving either methylene blue, intralipid, just fluid resuscitation with normal saline or no treatment. And what these authors found is that the rodents receiving intralipid had the highest rates of survival, and both intralipid and methylene blue improved heart rate and mean arterial pressure. Some less promising studies include a pig model comparing methylene blue to norepinephrine that showed no significant difference in survival. And then there was a systematic analysis of case reports of humans with toxin-induced cardiogenic shock who re received methylene blue with or without intralipid. And what these authors found is that only about half of the patients receiving methylene blue actually had improvement and hemodynamic parameters, and zero out of the seven patients receiving intralipid had any blood pressure improvement following administration. In addition to this mixed evidence for efficacy, it's also important to keep in mind that methylene blue and intralipid aren't without their drawbacks. Methylene blue can potentially result in methemoglobemia, especially if you have a patient with G6PD deficiency. 
And then it can also interfere with color metric analysis of lab tests. So what this means is after you administer methylene blue, you might not be able to reliably interpret interpret things like a CBC or a BMP. With intralipid, while it acts as a lipid sink for your toxin, it can also potentially act as a lipid sink for all of the therapies you're administering, so it could potentially decrease the effectiveness of your supportive cares. Because of this mixed evidence for efficacy, as well as potential drawbacks of these therapies, it's probably best to reserve methylene blue and intralipid for more refractory cases that are refractory to all other therapies. Based on the findings of their study, Cole and colleagues proposed an updated algorithm for calcium channel, treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose. They still recommend uh, first-line therapy with IV fluids and calcium and atropine if needed, but if you have a shock refractory to these first-line therapies, then they recommend simultaneously starting high-dose insulin to target cardiac output as well as norepinephrine to target systemic vascular resistance. From there, you'll monitor specifically heart rate, uh, bedside echo, looking at contractility, and then your mean arterial pressure. And if all these are adequate, you can continue your therapies where they're at. However, further therapy should then be guided by specific dysfunctions that a patient is demonstrating. So if a patient has inadequate heart rate, then you can give boluses of atropine. You can consider replacing your norepinephrine infusion with something with more beta activity like epinephrine. You can give additional inotropic agents, or you can consider pacing the patient. If bedside echo shows that the patient has inadequate contractility, this is when you would want to titrate up on your high-dose insulin up to your soft max of 10 units per kilogram per hour if needed, and then you can add additional inotropic agents like dobutamine as needed. If mean arterial pressure is inadequate, then you need to ask yourself, does this patient seem to have more of a cardiogenic or distributive shock? If the answer is distributive, then that's when you will want to optimize your alpha agonists like norepinephrine and titrating up on that dose or adding additional uh, uh, adrenergic agents like epinephrine or phenylephrine. You can add non-adrenergic agonists like vasopressin and angiotensin 2, or if you have a shock refractory to all these, then you can consider your methylene blue or administering intralipid if needed. If you have a shock that's more cardiogenic, then you go back to optimizing your high-dose insulin, inotropes, or pacing. And if you have a cardiogenic shock refractory to all of these therapies, then you can consider consulting the ECMO team if it's available at your institution you're practicing at, or if it's not available, then you can administer intralipid. So with this new algorithm in mind, let's go back to our patient case with NY. Remembering she's currently on high-dose insulin at a rate of eight units per kilogram per hour, on a high dose of norepinephrine at 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute, and has had her calcium repleted, and currently today, she's tachycardic with a heart rate of 95, hypotensive with a MAP of 50, and bedside ultrasound show that shows that she's currently hyperdynamic. So now I want you to think through what intervention would you implement at this time to improve NY's hemodynamic status? Would you A, switch norepinephrine to epinephrine, B, initiate vasopressin, C, optimize high-dose insulin to a rate of 10 units per kilogram per hour, D, administer intralipid, E, give her methylene blue, or F, consult the ECMO team? And again, I'll give everyone a minute to think through how they would answer this. So looks like I'm getting a variety of different answers. And I, how I think I would answer this question is probably B at this point. Given that NY is tachycardic, hypotensive, and has a hyperdynamic state, that tells me she's probably in a more uh, distributive or vasodilatory shock, so I'd want to optimize my vasopressors. A, switching norepinephrine to epinephrine would be helpful if she's bradycardic. However, in this case, she has heart rates in the 90s already. 
C, optimizing your dose of high-dose insulin would be beneficial if she has significant myocardial dysfunction and has decreased cardiac output. However, in this case, she's not hypodynamic. D and E are options that you could consider. However, I'd first optimize other vasopressors like vasopressin or even angiotensin 2 before reaching for these more refractory therapies with mixed evidence. And then F, ECMO consultation is probably going to have the most evidence if you have a significant cardiogenic shock refractory to other therapies and probably has less of a role and a vasodilatory shock. So key takeaways I hope you have from this presentation today, remembering that calcium channel blocker overdose due to loss of receptor selectivity can result in both a cardiogenic and vasodilatory shock state. High-dose insulin's um, mechanism of action is going to be optimization of myocardial energy utilization. So really what you're going to see is it's going to act as an inodilator and an increased force of contraction. Remember that titration of your therapy should be guided by a patient-specific shock state. So if you have a significant decrease in cardiac output, that's when you want to optimize your high-dose insulin. But if you have a significant vasodilatory shock state, then that's when you're going to want to titrate up on norepinephrine or add additional vasopressors. And then finally, remembering that amlodipine does have additional mechanisms of action that might result in a more profound vasodilation. So you might need to consider more refractory therapies like methylene blue or intralipid once other therapies have been optimized. So at this point, I can give everyone some time to ask me any questions that you have and clarify any points that um, I talked about in this presentation, or if you have any additional discussion for me, we can do that at this time. Thank you so much, Kyla, for this. Um, people can feel free to unmute and ask their own questions, or, or you can send them to me privately or put them in the chat, anything that makes you more comfortable. One thing you may have covered already, and I apologize, I was fielding some exec calls as well, um, but I had heard that um, these patients with high-dose calcium channel blocker overdoses generally don't become hypoglycemic because of insulin resistance that is created, um, and that that can even be a marker if somebody doesn't tell you that they um, took these meds, that if they're hyperglycemic mildly and it doesn't seem to come down with insulin, that could tip you off. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's not necessarily the first thing that I would use for, uh, for a screening tool. Where it might be most beneficial is if you have a patient that's demonstrating potentially a cardiogenic shock and has both like a beta blocker and a calcium channel blocker on their med list. With a beta blocker, you'd suspect more hypoglycemia, whereas with a calcium channel blocker, you'd suspect more hyperglycemia. Um, so if you're using that to determine what the more severe ingestion might be, then that can maybe potentially tip you off. However, treatment of both beta blocker and calcium channel blocker overdose is going to be fairly similar. Um, and it's hard to rely just on like one thing like hyperglycemia uh, to determine like, yes, this is a severe ingestion or not. And I wouldn't necessarily let that guide my therapy. The few I've only taken care of maybe three or four and they never became hypoglycemic. And this was when we weren't giving a bunch of glucose with it or dextrose. Um, do you have many reports of hypoglycemia while giving high-dose insulin as a therapy for these patients? Yeah, with my like anecdotally experience treating uh, calcium channel blocker overdoses when I was up at the Minnesota Poison Control Center, um, especially later on in their therapy is when you'll start to see that you're requiring higher rates of dextrose. Um, however, compared to patients that do ingest beta blockers, typically you're requiring lower rates of dextrose. And we actually just updated our protocol so that we're starting a lower rate of dextrose infusion at baseline because we had been seeing that a lot of our patients were becoming hyperglycemic from all the dextrose we were getting them and it really wasn't necessary. Thank you. I did get a question privately um, that I'll share. Is there ever a time to lower insulin dose if concerned more for vasodilatory shock? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And that actually happened in a particular patient case that I was managing um, back in September, where it was probably, a, it was an amlodipine overdose. And that's why I put in the patient case with NY. Um, and it was around like day three of her presentation. And we were seeing that she was persistently hypotensive. We had quickly titrated her high dose insulin up to a rate of 10 units per kilogram per hour. Um, and we performed formed a bedside echo and it looked like she was hyperdynamic. So our recommendations from poison control at that point was actually like, you can consider going down on the high dose insulin, repeating bedside cardiac ultrasound fairly frequently, um, and then add additional vasopressors as needed. And that actually worked out really well for her where within the next day we were able to completely titrate off the high dose insulin um, and we're weaning her fairly quickly from vasopressors. So definitely if you have a patient who's not demonstrating a cardiogenic shock and decreased cardiac output, then don't just keep cranking up on the insulin. And you can consider, I would definitely do this in conjunction with discussions with poison control, but consider going down on the high dose insulin, even, even if they are still uh, hypotensive, if you think it's all vasodilatory. Thank you so much, Dr. Hess. I'm always inspired by the depth of knowledge you and your colleagues have on the medications that we use every day and the problems that we encounter each day in our patients in the ED. I hope you all as listeners found that useful as well. Please don't forget to like, comment, and follow us on your platforms of choice. And come back in two weeks when June 1st rolls around, Alex Finch and I will be back with another great Always on EM podcast episode from the Mayo Clinic Emergency Department. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. 